Paratruth Radio is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts on KillerPodcast.com. Since the fall of man, a war has raged between good and evil. Over the centuries, this war has distorted the truth. Now the truth is perceived as lies, and lies acknowledged as truth. To this day, the battle continues as we investigate and debate the truth behind the history and mystery of the universe. We are Paratruth Radio. When men began to increase in number on earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever. He is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. And when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. Now Parachute presents Trailing the Nephilim, Part 1, with special guest L.A. Marzuli. Hey, Parafans, welcome to another episode of Paratruth Radio. Once again, running solo today. Ooh. Eric is uh, still out doing his thing with the uh, making the film, so I wish him the best of luck, and I can't wait to have him back on. Uh, it's definitely been quite a journey without him being on the show. Uh, but uh, tonight, uh, we've got a great guest for you. We have on L.A. Marzuli. L.A. is an author, lecturer, and filmmaker. He has penned eight books, including the Nephilim Trilogy, as well as uh, filmed the Watcher series, which is an amazing series, by the way. So if you guys get a chance, check that out. Uh, but we have such so much information to go over. Uh, we're going to be talking about his book, uh, On the Trail of the Nephilim, Part 1. We will have him on again to do a Part 2 on his book on the trail of the nephilim part two so without further ado let's go to the line with la marzuli la welcome to paratruth radio how are you i'm really good thanks for having me on appreciate it so uh just for everybody who uh has not heard of you i mean i'm sure everybody's heard of la marzuli but for those of our listeners that have not why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself well, I, I wish everybody had heard of me. I, maybe I don't wish everybody had heard of me. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Um, no, I, I'm an author, uh, filmmaker, lecturer, and um, I've also been a worship leader for 25 years, been a Christian for 35 years. Those are the most important things. Um, I come out of the occult. What I mean by that is when I was six, when I was 13, I left the Catholic Church. At 16, I became fascinated with Eastern mysticism, and a lot of that was due to the Sgt. Pepper Beetle 
Influx and the uh, Maharishi, where the Beatles were totally into it. Mm-hmm. Remember, I am a child of the 60s. I was at Woodstock and inhaled as deeply as I possibly could, unlike <laughs> our former president, uh, Bill Clinton. Um, I did not inhale. But anyway, um, uh, you know, that, that really impacted me. Uh, I was looking for truth. I was looking for God. And Eastern mysticism seemed to be the way to go. It also seemed uh, that Carlos Castanati, and if I can use those that term, um, uh, the Yaqui way of knowledge with Don Juan, uh, I was infatuated by those books. And, of course, that coupled with the uh, experimentation of peyote, vision quests, LSD, uh, and then finally winding up with a guru um, for basically three years, Guru Maharaji, the little 14-year-old kid who came over. I received knowledge. My third eye was open. I heard celestial music or what was supposedly celestial music. Basically what it is, it's a springboard uh, into the lower astral or into the occult world of the second heaven, which we are admonished in the biblical prophetic narrative not to seek, not to go into, right. uh, not to have anything to do with it because the denizens who are there are highly malevolent. But I didn't know that at the time. And... uh I left the guru at the age of 24, and um, it would be another six years before I uh, would would give my heart to our Savior, uh, God, the real one, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And so that was that's sort of a you know one minute clip or two minute clip of what I've been through. So what I do, I hold sort of a unique perspective, having come out of the occult and the new age, mm-hmm. and you know having experienced a lot of that stuff. Um, I, I can sometimes see very plainly um, the counterfeit. Uh, a lot of it has to do, a lot of the so-called uh, miracles today in today's charismatic hyper-Pentecostal movement is nothing more than the Kundalini serpent, serpent uh, which we find in Eastern mysticism, or it can be mixed with uh, familiar spirits. There's uh, some guy, I'm not going to mention his name, who's, New guy, young guy making the rounds now, and he's, you know, basically it's fortune telling. He's calling out personal prophecy for people, and I'm all for personal prophecy, but it's it's a sideshow. It's a carny sideshow, in my opinion, and I'm deeply suspect of anything like that. Let me say this, that in many of the revivals, and I know I'm going to get flack on this, uh, but I met Pastor John Kilpatrick, and he was the leader of the Brownsville revival. Mm -hmm. Over... A million people, according to his wife, which we spent two hours alone in a car with, as she was driving us to the airport, um, over a million people got saved. Okay, mm-hmm. or uh, that's fruit. And yeah. was there was there nonsense and, and stuff with it? Of course there was. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that goes with any revival. And the problem is. No one knows how to deal with this stuff. There's no guidebook to it. Right. What do you do when the Holy Spirit really shows up? For instance, you know, you want to talk about bizarre stuff. Yeah, Peter, you know, go, go cast your, your net in and you'll catch two fish and there's two gold coins out of the, in their mouths. Are you kidding me? You know, yeah, we'll, we'll make the axe head float. Mm-hmm. We got talking donkeys over here. I mean, seriously, yeah. it's wacky and I get that. And, and every, anytime Father God shows up, the counterfeit is always with it. People, how is that possible? Like, very easily. The most holiest moment in all of Scripture, in my opinion, one of the most holiest moments, I should say, is the Last Supper. Mm-hmm. Here we've got Jesus with his disciples, upper room. He girds himself as a servant and washes their feet. Are you kidding me? Right. And he knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. And he, and he, you know, and it's in the context of a Seder meal. And if, if and that's the trouble, we've, we've uncoupled ourselves. So we don't even know what a Seder is. We don't understand when we read that passage, what's really going on. He's taking the afikoman. Mm-hmm. 
He's breaking it and said, this is me. This is who I am. I'm the Afi Komen. I'm the one that's broken for you. And it has nothing to do with it, with all due respect to Catholics. It has nothing to do with transubstantiation, where it magically becomes the body and blood of, I mean, it's just wacky. Yeah. It's crazy stuff. And I don't believe that for a minute. But the Catholic Church needs that. Otherwise, they can't have a priest who performs the magic ceremony in front of everybody. Mm. It's, you know, hocus pocus. But it's not in the biblical prophetic narrative anywhere. Transubstantiation was just foisted on the a gullible public, you know, hundreds of years ago. Or maybe, I think it's, I'm not sure of the dates, but it's not that long ago. Um, you know, 500, 600 years ago, whatever. The bottom line is... This is what one of the things which why Luther nailed the 95 thesis on the Wittenberg door and said, this is nonsense, we can't do this anymore, but I digress. The bottom line is, in the context of that Last Supper, in that Seder meal, guess who comes walking in? Satan himself. Right. I mean, give me a break. It's unbelievable. What, what are we, you know, come yeah. on. I mean, is nothing sacrosanct? Apparently not. Right. And this is what Christians need to understand. Anytime revival breaks out, anytime, guaranteed, you're going to have the counterfeit with it. And this is why it's so, it's, you need to have a, a group of men and women who can discern the difference. And that's not always the case. And when it happened in Brownsville, Pastor John was very young. He was in his forties, you know, so I'm, I'm not, look, you know, I, I get it. A lot of funky stuff went down. I get it. Okay. I get it. But a lot of good stuff went down too. So right. that's where I'm at with it. All right. Well, to get started on uh, your books, the on the trail of the Nephilim. How did you get started on the trail of the Nephilim? Well, um, my mentor, Dr. I. D. E. Thomas, uh, wrote a book called The Omega Conspiracy, and I picked this up around 1988, 1989, somewhere in there. And uh, in that book, that book changed my life. And that book talked about the Nephilim and the uh, Genesis 6 incursion mm-hmm. and, and the seed war and, you know, the second incursion, the third incursion and the conquest of Canaan. And he, and he cited uh, many different passages uh, or from other books, which I immediately got, like the Book of Enoch and passages from Josephus. And I mean, I did my homework and I wound up interviewing him and uh, I received an honorary doctor from him uh, after, you know, the Nephilim trilogy. So it was like a red letter day for me um, to get an honorary doctorate from a man who I considered my mentor. Right, his, sure. book, yeah. his book set me on the path that I'm on. Um, if he, he passed away in 2013, and I think if he was alive today and to see how far We've carried his work, um, you know, down just how far we've carried his work. I think he would be pleasantly, pleasantly pleased. I really do. I think he would be, be proud of uh, the legacy because I tip my hat to Dr. I.D.E. Thomas. I mean, he's the guy that, uh, with his book, The Omega Conspiracy, sort of started all this. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm standing on his shoulders. But uh, I'm a trail of a Nephilim, Volume 1 and Volume 2, came because Russ Dizdar called me up and said, hey, lady, you know where you're going? I said, what do you mean where am I going? I was headed out to Newark, Ohio, to a, prop- a prophecy conference there. And I go, yeah, I'm going to Newark, Ohio. And he starts laughing and he goes, no, do you really know where you're going? And I go, Russ. And he goes, hey, are you by your computer? And I go, yeah. And he goes, Google Fallen Angels, the Nephilim Chronicle Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley. I'm going, what? <laughs> the Nephilim Chronicles, you know, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley, you have got to be kidding me. That's the work of Fritz Zimmerman. Fritz is a, is a steady contributor to our, our our monthly news magazine. He was also at this year's Nephilim Mounds 3. Shameless plug, we'll be giving the DVDs out for that fairly soon. Here's the deal, that when I when I got that book, 
it, that changed my life. Mm-hmm. I got a hold of Fritz. We spent time together one on one, but here I am in Newark and, and I'm with these people and immediately we go out to the great circle mound and I'm sitting there going, you have got to be kidding me. Yeah. Cause this, the circle mound is over 1200 feet in diameter. Some of those walls were 20 feet. Um, and it's connected to what's known as the octagon mound. All this, and here I am, I'm thinking that, that I'm done with the Nephilim. There's nothing more to do. Mm. Nothing could be further from the truth. And this set me on the quest, which I am on right now. Uh, we just finished, you know, on the trail one and two. We're working on three. DNA testing is going on. Um, you know, we're, we're up to our eyeballs and stuff. Yeah, we've got it a, sounds like it. <laughs> we've got an ongoing archaeological dig in an undisclosed lo- location on private property, uh, with a, with a, with an archaeologist all on the up and up. Uh, we think we're, we're going to find something there. You know, we've all, we've, it's definitely a, a very interesting place. Uh, we had a, a very interesting cosmic download from our archaeologist, Mark Kirschman, who was at Nephilim Mounds 3, who was listening to Gary Stearman and myself talk about the seed war that we read about in Genesis 3. And from that, he realized that the, the serpent mound may have different, may be constructed. And what we're looking at, um, the iconography that's there, the images that's there, and that and that long undulating serpent may have something hidden in plain sight. I'm actually working on a paper on that, and I hope to get that out some sometime sooner than later. So that's that's how I sort of got into all this, and uh, here we are. Well, I found it fascinating that it kind of all started in Newark, Ohio, because I'm I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. So to okay. see that the Nephilim are in Ohio as well as, you know, within the, the U.S. and several other nations, uh, it, it just baffled me because, you know, from reading the Bible, you're just kind of led to assume that they were just there in Israel, not around the world. Well, it's it's everywhere. I mean, and this is, this is what people don't understand, that, um, you know, when you really start getting into this stuff, um, there is a wa- worldwide cover-up of an agency, first of all, that has technology and whatever, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Mm. You can call whatever you want to, but whatever, whatever is going on with this stuff, it is completely beyond anything that we know about. It is using technology, uh, which we know nothing about. And I'm not making this stuff up. Um, what can I say? And you know, when you, when you go down to, uh, Peru and you actually look, at the uh, the sites there, like we did, Saxibaman, huge megalithic stones quarried from 40, 50 miles away, um, yet joined together with with absolute precision. How is that possible? Right. How do you how do you lift a 120 ton stone that has got 12 different cuts on it and and fit other stones to it? How do you do that? And you know, our, well, they had technology away that we don't know about. Oh, really? What was that technology, sir? <laughs> Just, and why don't we see any vestiges of it anywhere? You know, surely we would find some hidden tool. Nothing. Nothing is there. Right. What can I say? Right. Well, and I mean, for everybody out there that doesn't know the Nephilim, I mean, if you read the Bible, the Nephilim are a, a product of fallen angels and human women. Uh, you know, and it, it's becoming more and more common now that we're finding these gigantic skeletons. Uh, what's your take on, on the giant skeletons? Are we finding burial grounds uh, somewhere where maybe it was a mass grave? 
We are, let me just, let me just tell you this, that there is a concerted cover up to hide and obfuscate, um, what's really going on on this planet from the American people and the people of the world. What I have discovered by being on the trail is the university system basically controls the information that comes out of any archaeological dig. That's how it's, that's how it works. Um, even if you're a qualified archaeologist, Unless you're tied with the university, it's very difficult to go on any site and dig anywhere. Everything is under lock and key. You can't see this. You can't go there. You can't look at this. You can't see anything. And that's what we're up against. Meanwhile, um, I got word from a, a friend of mine um, about a cache of records that was found on Catalina in the in the attic of the museum. And John, the former curator of the Catalina Museum... Uh, John Borgino, uh, discovered this cache of records. Catalina is an island about 27 miles, um, west of, uh, of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the Channel Islands, which run from San Diego up to Santa Barbara. And in 1919, a, a primitive archaeologist by the name of Ralph Glidden was hired by the High Museum, later to be gobbled up by the Smithsonian Institute, to conduct primitive archaeological digs. And I get it. The guy used to pick in a shovel mm-hmm. for the most part. Right. Okay. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. You know, everybody wants to disparage this guy. He's a little more than a grave robber. Yeah, but he's been employed by the high. So, you know, go figure, right? Yeah. And this is what everybody's doing anyway. So, you know, mea culpa, mea culpa. But I, I get a, I get a, um, a, um, this, this, um, intelligence, for lack of a better word, that this cache of records has been found. So I immediately call the museum director. One thing leads to another. This goes on for eight months. And finally, when I get wind that they're building a new museum and they're looking for donations, I offer to make a $1,000 donation to the museum. Best $1,000 I ever spent. And they say, yeah, come on over. I charter a, a private plane because I wanted to be able to go over the interior of the, of the island, get aerial photographs of everything, get the lay of the land. And much to my delight, um, Terry Johnson, who uh, was is also a flight instructor, we went up in a, in a, a, a twin-seater with twin controls. It was a Cessna. Oh. And uh, he let me fly the plane over, and then I get the, I took off in the plane. I got to take off the plane. So I, I actually got to fly the plane. I mean, I, 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 you know, taxied down the runway and pulled back on the stick, and up we went. And I flew around the island and flew all the way back to Los Angeles. So that was an incredible moment for me. Um which I'll never forget. Thank you, Terry, if you're listening. The bottom line is, here I am in the archives, and it's not what people think. This cache of records had been picked over, and everything was cataloged. Everything was in manila envelopes um, and folders. In The pictures were in plastic sleeves. I mean, everything had been poured over, um, and, and they're all in these green museum boxes tucked away in a vault, mm-hmm. Okay. And there are two tables, you know, uh, folding tables, eight feet long, back to back, end to end, I should say, with white paper on them. And John's there, and he's going, well, what do you want to see? And I go, let me start with the pictures. So they go into the vault, they take the museum box. I've got pictures of all of this, by the way, in Armour Trail Volume 2. And they bring it out, set it on the table, and here I am with white gloves, because uh, I'm handling photographs and, and all these original documents, not reproductions, all original documents. My camera set up on my tripod. Let the fun and games begin. Within an hour, I found pay dirt. Within an hour. I went in there with my lens, my biblical lens, looking for six fingers, looking for giants, looking for elongated skulls. I found 
everything. All of that is in the book on the trail of Nephilim to Nephilim two, and it's it's fascinating. We I found one book, one picture, which is pay dirt in my opinion. Ralph Glidden standing in a recently openly open excavated grave, and in front of him is a very large skeleton. I passed that picture untouched. Right, I took a photograph of it, passed the picture to three researchers who then digitized the photograph and calculated that the skeleton was upwards, up over, around nine feet tall. So we did a plus or minus, you know, three inches or whatever. It's about eight foot nine. And and I even done it down further to eight foot six. Mm. That picture went viral. That picture was the picture that I unfortunately sent to uh, Jim Vieira, who at the time, and I didn't know this, had a production deal with a production company to film a TV series which later became In Search of a Large Giants, which the History Channel picked up. Lo and behold, they fly the Vieira brothers out to Catalina, and they make it look like the Vieiras discovered that picture. Nonsense. L.A. Marzulli discovered that picture, and that's why I bring it up on every show that I possibly can to set the record straight, because the record was really never set straight. Um, on the History Channel show, In Search of a Giants, it made it, they made it look like the VR brothers discovered the picture. Shame on them. And it's not Jim's fault. It's the production and the crew and what they do. I, I think Jim is, is, is more, way more up, upright than that. But, you know, this is what the, this is what the way the game is played. Right. Anyway, so they had my picture on there. They had me, they did a Skype interview with me and we did the analysis and talked about the analysis and I talked about Nephilim. So all that being said, this year, 2015, I think it was in May, but I'm not exactly sure, Richard Shaw and I decided to go back to the museum. And this is right before they moved to the new digs, which I have not yet seen. I'll probably go over in January because that's the off season and no one goes over there. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, that's the time to go, to go back over and look at the new museum. But here we are. Borgina has now, uh, been fired from his position and that's, you know, who knows what's going on with that. And, uh, you know, all this has gone viral, and we walk in, and the Ralph Glidden exhibit, which when I was there was in the, the entire museum. Now it's reduced to one small room, and they've got um, pictures as you walk in on the left and the right and in front of you, and over to the side there's a little alcove, all with pictures of Ralph Glidden's museum. Skeletons are everywhere, and most of them, of course, are Native Americans. Hmm. And in front of me, right in front of me, on the wall is a very large picture, 18 inches high, 2 feet wide. And it's the picture that I discovered in the archives of Ralph Glidden standing in a recently openly open excavated grave, and in front of him is a giant. But guess what? They cropped the giant out of the picture. And I got photographs to prove it, and I'm not making this stuff up. They cropped the giant out of the picture. And I turned to the, the curator, and I said, what would you guys do? And she goes, well, this is how I received the photograph. And Richard and I, my business partner and the producer and the director of the uh, of the Watchers films, all one, all one through nine, we looked at each other, our jaws were on the ground. And I show that picture in all my conferences now, and people are just, they just start laughing. And it's just like the last Republican debate. You know, these, these guys are weasels. Yeah. They're yeah. weasels. And they, they deliberately obfuscate the truth from the American people. Shame on them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's kind of amazing that uh, secrets are, are kept. And, uh, you know, for, for somebody else to get the acknowledgement 
that something you found is so absurd, but yet it happens every day. So uh, um, on that note, folks, I think we're going to take our first break here. You are listening to Paratruth Radio with my guest, L.A. Marzuli. We will be right back after Eric's Random Fact of the Day. Now, Eric's Random Fact of the Day. This month, I've decided to relay some fun facts about the month of November. And this particular fact is specifically directed to Justin. Did you know that on November 2nd, 1889, North Dakota became the 39th state of the United States? Well, according to FamousBirthdays.com, this is a fact. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on... Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. All right, folks, welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name's Justin, and I've been talking to L.A. Marzulli about his book, On the Trail of the Nephilim. Now, L.A., before we went to break, uh, you had mentioned the the elongated skulls um, that you had found in, uh, on skeletons. Now, how is that re- relevant to the, the Nephilim? Well, very, very much so. Um, what, it, what it does, look, let me back up. We are told very specifically here that there's going to be a seed war. We read about this in Genesis 3. Unless we understand the implications and the gravity of the Genesis 3 narrative, we are clueless. We have no idea what's going on, in my humble opinion. These are the, these are the participants in that Genesis 3 scene. We've got the Most High God who is basically telling what's going to happen to Adam and Eve and the fallen cherub, the serpent. And he looks at the serpent and he says, your seed, is talking to the serpent, your seed is going to be at war, at enmity, with the seed of the woman. He shall crush your head, you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman becomes Messiah. That's the whole, he shall crush your head, which happened 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. But the seed of the serpent will definitely culminate in the Antichrist and the Anti-Messiah. In other words, the Antichrist doesn't go to Antichrist school with 20 candidates and, you know, Bill Clinton gets, oh, I didn't say that, gets voted <laughs> gets voted in. That's not the way it works. I'm, I'm being light here, folks. Please, please don't quote me on that. <laughs> Just being silly. But the bottom line is he is the, he is the offspring, the son of perdition, the offspring of the fallen cherub. This Genesis 3... Biblical prophetic narrative sets up everything else in the Bible, tells us exactly what's going on. Genesis 6, we see the eruption of that seed war, 
where the Nephilim are on the earth, and this is what's so critical, if we don't get Genesis 3, we'll never get Genesis 6. If we don't get Genesis 6, then we'll never understand what happens with Sodom and Gomorrah and Nimrod at Babel. Or certainly we won't understand the mandate from a loving, holy God to go in and wipe everybody out in the promised land. Hmm. We'll never understand it. The Nephilim are on the earth in those days and also afterwards. And I realize the body of, of, of Christ is, is, is split over this. There are some who, who adamantly refuse to look at the Nephilim and, oh, this is impossible. Why would God allow it? Blah, blah, blah. I wrote this all in my book, The Cosmic Chess Match. The protocols of the heavenly war, as my, my, uh, my good friend and elder brother Gary German would say, are in effect. And we don't understand the protocols of the heavenly cosmic chess match, the mm. heavenly war. We don't understand all of them. We're not given privy to them. For instance, this is Gary's German, his insight. When the scroll is presented in the heavenly scene in the book of Revelation, there is no one found worthy to open it. There is silence in heaven for a half an hour. Finally, the lamb comes up, and he's worthy to open the scroll. And Gary believes, as I do, that the scroll is an indictment, a legal indictment against the fallen cherub. That's what it is. And against the, those who have aided and abetted him throughout humanity. It is a legal indictment read in the court of heaven. Now, that's just a glimpse. That's Gary's take on it, and I'm going with it. It makes perfect sense to me. So the bottom line is the Nephilim are on the earth and also afterwards. The sons of God are always B'nai Ha-Elohim, which always refers to the angelic host. The, the daughters of men are always the daughters of Adam. That's what it is. You can't, you can try to tap dance around that. You can torture the text till the cows come home, but that's what it is. And I love these guys who, you know, who try to tell us that, well, it's really not what it says it is. LA, it's the godly line of Seth and the hoochie mamas of Cain, but that's not <laughs> what the text says. There are no hoochie mamas in the text, and Seth is not mentioned there. And this is why when we get to Matthew 24, and Yeshua, Jesus tells us it'll be like the days of Noah when he returns, this is what's so important. Important is crucial. If we don't understand Genesis three, Genesis six, uh, the Tower of Babel, the days of Noah, when Yeshua tells us it'll be like the days of Noah when the Son of Man returns, we have no idea what he's talking about. Right. None at all. It's a seed war, folks, and that seed war is going on even as I speak. There are hybrids that are manifesting. We've heard about them. We've talked about them. It is alarming. There's a breeding program that's going on. You know, we, we talk about this in our Watchers 7 and Watchers 8. We've got hard physical evidence in Watchers 7. You know, you get this stuff, you'll arm yourself. The blue book, Days of Chaos, talks about this stuff. Days of Chaos, Watchers 9, talks about everything that we're, we're hinting about in, in the program. We are in the most tumultuous, unprecedented time in all history, in my opinion. Oh, and I 100% agree. I mean, there's so much going on right now that kind of lines up with biblical prophecies. Some of it does, some of it doesn't. Just depends on where you're from and what you believe. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's so much lining up right now that, to me, it's hard to ignore what what the Bible says and what's happening today. Um, but... Uh, so a little bit about the the elongated heads. Um, you know, these were I'm sure found several areas in the world. Uh, you know, there's been the people that say you know it's been done by 
um, binding. Um, what what is your uh, research tell you on this? Well, look, some some of the skulls have definitely been cradled headboard a bit. It begs the question: Why get up on a Monday morning and turn to your son and go, "We're going to make you a, a cone head?" Right. Yeah, right. I mean, what's the point of doing that? I mean, it just makes no sense. Um, it is our it is our um, contention that some of the skulls are cradle headboarded, but others are not. Other the skulls I saw in Catalina, there's no way. The pictures of it, there's no way that thing's cradle headboarded. The skull that we've had access to in a private collection in Oregon, there's no way you can cradle headboard that, in my opinion. I've I've shown it to doctors, they all look at it and go, ooh bully. There's no way. There's no way you can take from the brow ridge and bend that forehead back at a 45 degree angle. You'd kill the, you'd kill the kid. You'd mm-hmm. kill him. And yet that's what we see. Um, uh, craniocentosis, which is, uh, a fancy word for when this, the sagittal suture, which goes from the frontal plate, there's, look, let me back up. A human, normal human skull has a frontal plate, two occipital plates, or, or I'm sorry, two parietal plates and an occipital plate in the rear. Mm-hmm. The two parietal plates are, are split uh, at the top of the skull by what is called a suture. It's, it, it's called a suture. It's like a, it looks like a suture, okay? Mm. Um, like a zipper, which holds the plates together. It goes from the top of the frontal plate to the occipital plate in the rear. And that divides the parietal plates. We saw many skulls in Peru with an abs, any, any, any sign at all of a sagittal suture. And of course, you know, there is a disease called craniocentosis, which, which shows that the, that the sagittal suture disappears over age. However, the dentition that we have from one of the skulls was a 26-year-old female. And craniocentosis doesn't happen until late, later on and much later on in life. So um, why the plethora of the lack of a sagittal suture? Why are we seeing scar after scar after skull without a sagittal suture? Right. Look, in my opinion, there's an outside agency that's manipulating the genome. That's what's going on here. There's an outside agency that's manipulating the genome. And it is it is beyond the pale. It is unlike anything I've ever seen. Now, uh, going going from the Bible, you know, we we see the Nephilim come to pass and you know we see the flood that supposedly kills everything. Uh, you know, a lot of Theories are is that the Nephilim survived. How do you how do you think they did they survived the the flood? Well, I, I think it's very simple. I think I think that this is why the biblical narrative is so. I mean, you either believe it or you don't. If I tell you that um, I'm going to uh, build houses now and also afterward, what does that mean to you? Well, I mean, it's just. What does that mean? It means I'm building houses now, right. but I'm also going to build a house later on. Right. Right? I mean, that's what it means. And the Genesis 6 account is, I mean, I can't say it any clearer. The Genesis 6 account says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God saw the women of men, had had children by them, these were the men of renown, and Nephilim were on the earth, the whole deal. And also afterwards, Moses is writing the Tanakh, specifically the Torah, thousands of years after the flood. Why would he, why would he write that? He would just write the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, mm. the days of Genesis 6, but he's, you know, he doesn't say that. And because he knew, as did all the rabbis and everybody else, that the Nephilim were on the earth. The sons of Anak, the Nephilim, 
people torture this. And the reason why they torture it is because they don't have the correct supernatural worldview of the biblical prophetic narrative. And they want to dumb it down. Oh, they can't do it more than once. That's it. There's some, somehow I'm going to make this up as I go along, but the fallen angels, they only can do it one time. Where does it say that? It doesn't. It doesn't say that. In fact, what we see is an ongoing war between the principalities. Think about this in the book of Revelation. Michael fights with Satan and his angels, and Satan is cast down to earth. What are the inhabitants of earth? Because the dragon Satan, the fallen cherub, blah, 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 is cast down to earth. He can't get back into the second heaven. Man, is he ticked off because he knows his time is short. I mean, that's a war. That's a war that's going on. You see, we, we, we have this trunk, most of us have a very truncated view of the biblical prophetic narrative. We really don't want to believe what it says. And so we make all these ridiculous assumptions. Well, the son of a, one of the, the son of a, the wife of Ham must have been a Nephilim. That means that the loving holy God of the Bible is a trickster or he's not all knowing. Well, I'm going to wipe out the entire planet here. But I'll just leave Ham's wife as a Nephilim. What the heck? You know, that that makes sense. Yeah, we'll just, oh, I missed one. Dang, I hate when that happens. I mean, come on. And this is why I am so adamant about it, because it impugns the character of the Most High God, in my opinion. You know, I get it. Through the race of Ham, the whispering started, probably before the Ark. I get it. But there's a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth incursion. It's going on now in modernity. The prophecy of Daniel says, in the latter days, they will mingle with the seed of men, but will not cleave to them. The work of Jim Williamson tells us that the word cleave is the same word that we read about in the Genesis 6 narrative when the the fallen angels are taking wives to themselves. So this is how it happened. I mean, it's just, it's so straight ahead. I don't understand all the fuss. I don't get it for the life of me. Really don't. I'm just, I'm just, you know, it says Satan will come with all signs of lying wonders. Well, it really doesn't mean what it says, LA. It's, it's, you know, that could be another hundred years from now or 500 years. I love these people who are looking at what's going on, the days of chaos that we see ourselves completely surrounded in. And, oh, it could be another hundred years before the Lord returns. Really? With the Ruskies in the Middle East? Is that not, is that not from the far reaches of the north? Is that unprecedented? The fact that the Chicoms are in the Mediterranean? Um, are we, are we get, seeing the, the, um, the revealing of, of hybrid beings? Yeah, we are. I keep getting, I keep getting information, keep getting emails from people who are experiencing this stuff. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not making this stuff up. And this is, this is where we are. This is what's going on. And people should instead of having this truncated view and, and, you know, sitting in ivory towers. Oh, that's impossible. These Nephilim never did this. Oh, Puma Punku, you know, really wasn't built by the Nephilim. Uh, it was built by extraterrestrials. Oh, well, Saksibamon, well, the technology is lost. Nonsense. There's a worldwide, in my humble opinion, there's a worldwide paradigm, which was its, which, which was operation then, and in some cases an operation now. And many of the sites that we see from antiquity, I call it Fallen angel technology, Nephilim architecture. That's my term. I invented that term. Nephilim, fallen angel technology, Nephilim architecture, because that's what it is. When you're down in Peru and you look at Sac Sebaman, Oye Tintambo, 
the, the incredible city of, of Corral. When you go to Teotihuacan, and I've stood there at the Pyramid of the Sun and just looked around and went, where did this technology come from? Yeah. Who gets up on a Monday morning and builds the largest pyramid on the planet, and it's larger than Giza? The base, it's not higher than Giza, but the base is larger than Giza. It's like, what what is this? Who wakes up on a Monday morning? And again, all the knowledge that they really find out is hidden. We're, oh, yeah, the archaeologists found a secret tunnel. Well, what did they find? Well, we're not going to tell you. Well, thanks so much. Everything is managed. As Chuck Messer would call it, it's a carefully managed agenda. And that's that's what's going on, in my opinion. Well, well and, you know, I feel that uh, nobody should be uh, – Separated on this. I mean, we are all working towards the same goal. Christian, non-Christians are trying to figure things out. Uh, you know, but you can't just wipe off one person's views and then say, well, my views are right. Uh, and you know, it, one of the biggest things about the, the pyramids and all the different, uh, megalithic structures that are out there, people are always saying, well, this is how they did it. How, this is how they did it. Well, their explanations are maybe plausible, but like some people say the pyramids were made with sound waves. I'm like, how, how, how would that even work? Like, how could you aim a sound wave right at where you're trying to put the stone and it fit exactly how you're trying to do it? Well, we don't know. And this is what's so enigmatic. And, and this is, you know, you talked about the Great Pyramid in Giza. And with all due respect to Zawi Hawass, and I would love to spend two weeks with Zawi, you know, on, on a private tour. Are you kidding me? I mean, the man is an amazing Egyptologist. Right. And he, you know, I mean, my hat is off to the guy. But I don't agree with him in his assessment with the Great Pyramid. And here's why. In the Neolithic, there's no way to cut granite that we know about. There's no way. They have copper tools. They can't cut granite. Mm-hmm. There are very large stones the size of railroad cars over the king's chamber which is two-thirds of the way up the Great Pyramid. These stones are solid granite blocks. Solid granite blocks. They come from Aswan 500 miles away. Let's just start there. Let's just let's just forget about everything else. Just show me how you can cut a granite block in the Neolithic. You can't do it. And, and, and move that puppy from Aswan 500 miles away to the site. Mm-hmm. And that blows it out of the water because you can't show me. You can't. You can talk about it, but there's no way. I mean, I would. I would give a million if I had a million dollars, or I was a multi multi millionaire. I'd set up a challenge, the granite block challenge. Show me how they did it. Right. Show me how you cut and quarry huge megalithic blocks out of granite and then move it down from Aswan. To, to the Giza site, it can't be done, in my opinion. And that blows. If you can't do that. Then everything else is suspect. Right. Everything else. And I look at all these sites, including the Great Pyramid of Giza, as fallen angel technology, Nephilim architecture. And that's, uh, as best of an explanation that I've, I've ever heard on. Thank you. On that. So. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I just said praise the Lord. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Give all glory where glory is due. Right, absolutely. Um, all right, folks, uh, I think we're going to take our next break here. You are listening to Paratruth Radio. We will be right back with L.A. Marzulli after your paranormal headlines. 
And now, Parachute Radio's Paranormal Headlines. How's it going, Parafans? Justin here with your Paranormal Headlines. And these headlines are from unexplainedmysteries.com. Mystery surrounds Kazakhstan geoglyphs. Archaeologists have long struggled to explain the nature and origins of the ancient steppe geoglyphs. Dating back up to 8,000 years and sprawled across the vast areas of northern Kazakhstan, these remarkable earthworks remain one of the most enduring archaeological mysteries of recent times. Even with the help of NASA, which has been aiding in the investigation by making it possible to take high-resolution satellite images of the region, researchers still don't know who constructed them, how they were built, or what their original purpose was. The first of the geoglyphs was identified back in 2007, and since then, a total of 260 have been found scattered across the country. Some of the formations look a bit like crop circles, while others consist of intricate patterns and shapes, some even covering an area of over 810,000 square feet. Thousands of years ago, the region was home to nomadic Stone Age tribes who were unlikely to have built the geoglyphs because they had never stayed in one place long enough to do so. The idea that foragers could amass the numbers of people necessary to undertake large-scale projects like the Kazakhstan geoglyphs has caused archaeologists to deeply rethink the nature and timing of sophisticated large-scale human organization as one that predates settled and civilized societies, said University of Winnipeg archaeologist Persis B. Clarkson. North America home to millions of koi wolves. A new wolf-coyote hybrid species is starting to take over and could already number in the millions. There's something unusual roaming the wilds of Canada and the United States. A four-legged canine that is similar but in many ways superior to native wolves and coyote populations. A crossbreed between wolves and either coyotes or domestic dogs, the aptly named koi wolf, has come about due to the increasing lack of suitable mates for wolves in the wild. Unlike their parents, however, these hybrid animals are more muscular, have bigger jaws, and are generally larger, meaning that packs of them can take down much larger prey. In recent years, researchers believe that the number of koi wolves in North America has increased substantially, and that there could now be several million of them across the continent. The Northeast has seen the largest growth in population of these animals, and it is no longer unusual to find them wandering into urban areas such as Boston, New York City, and Washington, D.C. What will ultimately become of the native wolf and coyote populations, however, remains to be seen. And this has been Justin with your Paranormal Headlines. This was a segment of Parachute Radio's Paranormal Headlines. Alright folks, welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name is Justin, and I've been talking to L.A. Marzulli about his book, uh, On the Trail of the Nephilim. And uh, so we were uh, talking about the skeletons and the different megalithic uh, structures. Uh, 
we are getting close to the end of the show here, so I wanted to ask you uh, if you could tell anybody anything about these this different evidence that you're finding about the Nephilim, uh, what would you tell them? I would tell them that there's an outside agency that's been manipulating the genome for thousands of years, just like the biblical prophetic narratives tells us uh, will happen. And, um, you know, there it is. I mean, it's like it's like right there. Genesis three. Um, it is everywhere. They're continually finding more skeletons, uh, more evidence that something is going on. And, um, you know, they don't they the powers that be. The university system, the archaeologists, the Darwinists control the information. And I realize that sounds like a right-wing conspiracy, but but it is. There is a conspiracy to keep this information from the general public. Um, what's interesting is, um, and let me just let me just see if I can find something. I want to read you something if I can find it quickly. Yes, here it is. Hold on. I just want to I just want to read this to you. This is from a, a book. That if you're studying to be an archaeologist, you, you read this in the first year. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is talking about the mound builders in Ohio, where we are working on right now. The mound builder controversy continued to smolder through the 19th century, pitting those who believed in an exotic explanation for the earthworks against more sober scholars like Samuel Haven of the American Antiquarian Society, who argued that the artifacts in the mounds often bore a resemblance to those used by living Native American groups. Writers churned out dozens of literary fantasies about the mound builders, writing about white people of great intelligence and skill who had waged wars of conquest over the Midwest thousands of years ago. These racist theories had no foundation in scientific fact, but it was not until the 1890s that Cyrus Thomas of the Bureau of American Ethnology proved beyond all reasonable doubt that the mounds were in fact of Native American manufacture. Guess what? That's just not true. And when you when you talk to Native Americans, as we have, they'll tell you that we didn't build these mounts. They were here when we got here. So is this an out and out lie? You know, the 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 the, the, the diffusionists um, or or the isolationists in archaeology will will try to tell us that. Um, and let me just read this real quick here. Uh, they're talking about the idea of diffusionists. Versus uh, isolationists. The isolationists believe that uh, people migrated extremely slowly, that people aren't curious, that they stay in one place and don't move around. So the author writes, not that this deters the lunatic fringe who still write of epic voyages and lost civilizations buried under Antarctic ice to say nothing of ancient astronauts landing on Earth and creating ancient Maya civilizations. By the 1920s, both uh, unilinear evolution and diffusionism were discredited. Explanations for the past as archaeology became a full-fledged scientific discipline. May I just point out to you that with all due respect to this author, that Thor Heyerdahl in Ra and Kantiki, Kantiki is the one most people know about, but in Ra, he completely blew that out of the water. Guess what? You can build a papyrus boat, which the Egyptians could have done, put a sail on that baby, sail out of a delta, the Nile Delta, into the Mediterranean, and without doing doodly squat, other than just pointing a sail where the trade winds blow, you will wind up in Barbados. In the Gulf of Mexico. That's where you wind up. And this is precisely what diffusionism is all about. We believe that people want to see 
what's on the other side of that mountain, and they will do epic sea voyages. And yes, there were lost continents. How do you explain Sock Sabaman with all due respect? Mm-hmm. How do you explain, and this is why it's so dishonest, but this is the party line. i tell you one other thing. I had a conversation with a tenure professor at a major university, and I asked him or her, um, what do you say to uh, medical professionals from the 1920s who were there when these giant skeletons were exhumed. And they measured them because they knew how to measure. They had anatomy. It's only the 20s. It's not that long ago. And they were claiming that these skeletons were well over 9, 10, 11, 12 feet. And you know what the answer was? That these medical doctors did not know how to measure. I'm not making that up. I'm not making that up. That's all they got. And this is why when we go to the museum in Catalina, to get back to the, to the, to on track here, the picture of Ralph Glidden standing in a recently excavated tomb from 1919 on Catalina Island, mm-hmm. showing the evidence shows from three different, um, experts who looked at the photograph, analyzed the photograph, there was no collusion till all three presented their evidence to me, told us that there's a nine-footer there, and yet we see that the evidence is cropped from the picture. It's deliberate. It's deliberate, Justin. Right. And it it will always be deliberate because they're trying to hide the truth. I completely, 100% believe that. All right, Ellie, uh, it was an honor having you on. I did want to give you a chance to tell everybody where they can find you, find the books, all that great stuff. Uh, go to lamarzuli.net, lamarzuli.net, www.lamarzuli, M-A-R-Z as in zebra, U-L-L-I, lamarzuli.net, and there's all sorts of neat stuff there. Uh, the holidays are coming up. You know, you want to wake up people? Buy the Watchers 8-box set, all 8 Watchers. Buy Watchers 9, The Days of Chaos. Check out Amitrail, Nephilim Volume 1 and 2. Tons of products there. Look at the photographs and avail yourself of what I believe is cutting information. All right. Thank you so much. I'm glad that uh, we were able to have you on. And uh, I am looking forward to having you on for Part 2 of On the Trail of the Nephilim. But until then, have yourself a good day, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Justin. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that was L.A. Marzulli, such a great guest. Uh, definitely check out his website, uh, net, as well as his books, On the Trail of the Nephilim, Part 1 and Part 2, uh, as well as his Watcher series. Uh, we are going to have him on, like I said earlier again, to talk about On the Trail of the Nephilim, Part 2. Uh, so much more information to get out there. Uh, truthfully, I, I never knew much about the Nephilim until... Uh, starting to do some research myself to, to do the show today. Uh, so definitely going to be an excellent show, uh, to follow up on that. Uh, but next week, uh, we have, uh, Mary Sutherland, author of Haunted Burlington, Wisconsin. So that's going to be a great show for you guys. Uh, stay tuned for that, uh, as well as the follow-up with L.A. Marzulli. Uh, we've got a bunch of great things coming for you guys, some, Big things coming for you, so stay tuned every week. On that note, that is all I've got for you this week. My name's Justin. We will see you guys same time, same channel next week, guys. Later. If you enjoyed this episode of Parachutes Radio and you would like to listen to it again, 
or are interested in listening to any of our past episodes, then you can listen to them on HD at our website, paratruthradio.com. And you can also find us at Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, iTunes, Spreaker, and YouTube. And of course, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for brand new updates of our show every day. To help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that helped shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.